Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about how they got to where they are, their peak experiences around flow, lessons they learn from fear, risk, death, and everything in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and spending time outdoors helps us find meaning and transformation. Before we start, special shout out to everyone in Austria. You have got me to number 60 on the list of most popular philosophy podcasts in Austria. Number 32 in Canada, but I'm more impressed with Austria. More stoked with Austria. Keep doing your thing. Like, rate, subscribe, all that jazz. Anyway, in this episode I chat with former pro snowboarder, turned traditional weaver and artist Megan O'Brien. Megan and I have a wide-ranging conversation, diving into snowboarding, weaving, flow states, and everything in between. We start off chatting about how she fell in love with snowboarding and built a professional career, but also talk about how she fell in love, fell out of love with it later on. It's, it's funny, when we watch a mountain film, we only see the, the beautiful polished magnificent finished product we don't actually see all the politics about getting funding the obsessiveness with finding the right shots and taking and retaking those shots as well as the pressure and distraction that comes with a a, a film crew megan wonderfully articulates the challenge of staying in love with boarding despite some of these factors and we explore intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and how extrinsic motivation from competitions rewards and accolades and all that stuff while it's nice it can actually have a a toxic side to be mindful of megan talks about her journey of of finding flow and, and shares an amazing story on a peak experience she had while filming a trick on the 70 foot jump and how her spiritual practice and in, including yoga and, and taoism uh, really helped contribute to that Megan talks about how she fell in love with weaving, how the wisdom of her First Nations heritage informed her practice, and how she was able to access flow states through the art of weaving, as well as the similarities and differences when comparing flow states in weaving with flow states in boarding. That's just some of the things. It's very wide-ranging conversation, very exploratory conversations. I really think you'll enjoy it. Please enjoy Megan O'Brien. So I'm here with Megan O'Brien. Megan, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Thanks so much, Tim. So this project is on the exploration of the deeper lessons we, we learn from the outdoors. And I'm, I'm really excited to chat about, one, your, um, your, your experience uh, as a professional snowboarder, uh, and, and two, your transition to traditional weaving. Um, can you share a, a little bit more about how you got into to snowboarding in the first place? Sure. Um, yeah, like, I guess some of my earliest memories were going up the mountain with my dad uh, when I was super little, like basically, I don't know, four, three years old kind of thing. Like some of the earliest memories that I have were skiing with him. And uh, I guess I started snowboarding um, when I was maybe 13, like 12 or 13, somewhere in there, like grade seven. And I wasn't like too big a fan of skiing. It was more like kind of getting dragged up the hill. All my youth 
because my dad wanted to take us. So he kind of forced that bit on us, I guess. Um, but I appreciate it. And we did have fun. But with snowboarding, it was more like me pulling him out of the bed, like, hey, we want to go up. Let's go. Let's go. And just really found something real special love uh, in that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was like that connection to the mountain in a different way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and um, what was the connection in um, just spending the time outdoors or was it the, the progression into to harder lines or, or, or tell me more about how, how you fell in love there? Um, I don't know. There's something about snowboarding that just seemed to click in a different way than skiing did for me. Um, and I don't, I can't really pinpoint what that was, but it definitely opened me up to, um, I guess a passion I hadn't really felt before. Cause you know, I did also all kinds of sports. We were like in figure skating, swimming, baseball, like all the school sports, track and field and all that stuff. And, um, but with snowboarding, it felt like, uh, more, I don't know. It felt like more freedom. Like I was very, very, very introverted as like in kind of elementary school and junior high so it was a very solitary very like kind of felt like I could express myself but I was and feel like feel in being in your body but not feel like I was in a team setting and I think that was part of the appeal mm. yeah there's yeah. something about the the uh, uh simultaneously allows you to connect with yourself and with nature and that 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 not many other sports can yeah yeah yeah. And it's like, I, nowadays I like enjoy, I've enjoyed thinking about some of the differences and parallels between like the drive for me uh, towards like something like snowboarding versus more traditional sports. Um, Cause snowboarding in the, you know, mid nineties had only been around not that long. Um, so this like newness of it to consider that like when I started, especially there's really no such thing as like an ancestor in that sport. It's like being pushed, like the, this idea of pushing the boundaries, it's kind of being, having its limits set on it as it's going and then surpassing those. Um, but with weaving something that, you know, has like our people on the coast, I think there's underwater archeological sites that they've done um, just off Haida Gwaii where it goes back 14,000 years. So it's really like heavy duty history and this like kind of ideas around preservation of culture and language and art um, that come from the land. And so for something like snowboarding, I mean, you're out on the land and in these like very supernatural spaces, but in this way that is kind of outside both of those ideas of like um, old cultures um, and alternative kind of sports, those are on the outskirts of like the capitalist ideologies and Western value sets, especially early in snowboarding, it was very fringe and um, these kind of alternatives just to Western civilization in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I heard um, someone describe um, how when the, um, in the, uh, in the seventies, when the hippie movement got, got pushed underground, uh, a lot of those people ended up going to the ski hills and, and ski and snowboard culture, uh, it very much like kept the torch going in terms of the, the, the counterculture. But I think that's a, a fascinating, uh, uh, parallel between, um, one snowboarding being, a um, a, a pie, especially in the nineties, a pioneering time, 
um, compared to, to, to weaving, which is very much holding a, a, a deep tradition. Um, before we go into the, the, the connection, um, I'm curious at, at what point did you, you realize that you were really good at, at snowboarding or that snowboarding could become a profession? Um, well, I guess when I was like 17, kind of 17, 18, um, somewhere in there, um, my, our dad, my dad, uh, Brian, he started bringing us around to competitions um, in BC. So the BCSA contest scene. And um, there was also like the school program that we were doing, I think before that, where we had like the race program up at Highland Secondary School. So you got every Monday off, or maybe it was every second Monday or something for the, the races. So everybody was in it and we all loved it. It was, um, so I, I was I was falling a lot at the start of that. And then um, when I stopped falling, I was just like giving it or whatever, um, trying really hard to go fast. <laughs> and um, so I was doing well in those. And then I don't know if that was like uh, a thing. Honestly, I would say though, cause I did have like a, I moved to Whistler right after high school and kind of outside of that framework, which like I never really enjoyed the competition environment that much. Um, so I didn't really keep up with that side of things. And it was more just riding park and um, a little bit unfocused, I guess. But it was when my youngest sister um, started to um, continue with her competition and start doing well it was it kind of planted the seed in my head that like maybe if I keep trying I can have a career as well was that in your mind when you moved to Whistler or, or was that something uh afterwards that you realized um yeah I guess it was in I think I had some sponsors when I was yeah when I was 17 18 through those contests so there was like regional reps and things I was writing for Raw Signal really early on I think they were my first sponsor um and that kind of continued on, but it didn't really go anywhere further than that mm. um, at that time. Then I lived in Switzerland for a year. Um, and then I blew my ACL and then came back over here. And then that was when I really um, started investing myself again. Because, mm -hmm. yeah. In investing in snowboarding as a career again? Or what do you mean by investing in yourself? Yeah, investing in, yeah, snowboarding as like a, direction I wanted to pursue as mm -hmm. a career and less as like a career but there was always just a feeling of um potential that I had um that I didn't want to walk away from it so to speak to go because I was when I got back from Switzerland I also did um a semester of classes at Capilano so it was just have this really like long-standing desire to like understand the world and society and my place in it and so I was taking those classes more as personal interest, but I was really enjoying it. But that was kind of the, the real moment where I was like, okay, I'm not going to invest my time to actually get a degree in anything. I'm because I can always do that later. I'll invest my time in snowboarding because mm -hmm. of the limitations of the body kind of idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. But potential, um, is super interesting, especially when it comes to limitations of the body. Um, before before I got into adventure sports, I was um, very serious about track and field. And there, there's something about uh, specifically about track and field where it's it's really just you and the clock, and you're you're running laps around a track. 
um, that um, you, there's always there, there's many different factors that come together on on, on in terms of just how fast uh, your your potential is, and and um, it's something that's common. Is so. I would say say my my personal best at a specific event is this time, but I I, I truly think I my potential was another five ten seconds faster or so. Um, I'm curious what potential meant to you in that in that moment. Um, I think in that moment, um, I guess it was like the drive to become the vision that you have in your head, maybe what you imagine you could do or who could be those kinds of things but I think in that early stages of my life as well there was like some desire to prove myself through sport um because I was so quiet it was when I would do well in in contests in high school it was like that was really the only time I felt like anybody talked to me was if I did good at things so there was some like unhealthy stuff there and just some of the there's a big part of me that um really believes in our the integrity of the body and the inherent um, value and worth of the body without having to achieve anything with it. Um, that I look at that as like kind of a sad motivation at that period of my life. Um, kind of the definition of us based on successes and things, but there's also, I mean, I can appreciate the, the human desire to, um, expand and do better and become, become more always, but there's like this fine line for me about where, where the motivation and the reason for doing it comes from, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That really hits home for me. Um, yeah. And cause, cause in many ways, um, the, the act of surpassing what you thought was, uh, you were capable of or pushing past something that, that really scares you or, or something that, that is really exhausting to you is, is deeply meaningful, but, um, only when it internally motivated, intrinsically motivated. It's all. It's it's also a very fine line between when that's like an internal motivation versus when that's um, coming from a place of I'm not enough, therefore I have to to prove myself by this this accolade. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I find that kind of thing really blinding. Like um, that was the the thing with snowboarding and filming in the backcountry or trying to film like video parts and stuff was I felt like that really got clouded over and was kind of layered over top of appreciation for the mountains themselves and where we actually are. Like we kind of bring this like almost like microscopic mentality up into the mountains. That's these like weird, weird like social scenes. And I don't know, it's very, very strange to me in some ways and felt like the you know, kind of manicuring or like thinking of the terrain in terms of where is it going to be filmed from so we can't walk there, like you don't want it to be all messed up. So kind of the focus of it being around a shot uh, of something rather than whatever else. Mm -hmm. I don't know, they're always so, such big contradictions because there's real beauty in that too. Like that's an art form in itself as well. But I don't know, I'm having a hard time because I can't see like, like both angles now like i feel like i'm a bit less polarizing with my perspectives in some ways uh, while they're still polarized I, I but then i think to myself oh i can see the beauty in that you know and, and yeah <laughs> no no i i love it honestly i uh, i 
I, I love exploring these con contradictions. In some ways, this, this project is, is entirely to explore those. Um, so, so you said you're, uh, you're less polarizing now than, than you used to be on that? Yeah, I used to just think it sucked completely and saw nothing good in any of that <laughs> at all after. Um, but now, I mean, I can see, you know, I love, I love a beautiful photograph. Mm -hmm. So the, the filming itself um, of these shots, is, is that what you thought? That, is that what you fell out of love with? I guess, yeah, it was, maybe it was like, uh, I'm trying to think of different experiences. So one experience was like working for like, or not working, but like, yeah, sponsors want you to have a, a good part, which like I never had really an outstanding part ever, but they want you to have a good part. They want you to have a good season. They want you to get lots of stuff published if that's the route you're taking. Um, and they want you to generate exposure and the film crews having all this money thrown at them to support their projects. They want to create something good too. So there's just this motivation behind it to produce and be productive and whatever. Um, and that's the part I think that like kind of takes away from it in some ways, but I did have a really good experience more with just friends. Um, we were like winter camping, uh, couple different seasons up in northern BC and only split boarding and we'd you know stay out in the mountains for three four or five nights at a time and um and one of them had a uh, camera so we were taking turns like doing lines and photographing each other and it was quite amazing with only me I would they would do twice as many runs as me it worked out well because it was all one big bowl so they could kind of lap me because <laughs> I'm so slow and uh but it worked out well and we, we were productive, so to speak. We generated a ton of photos, not for anything in particular, but, um, you know, if it, that was taken through the lens of when you're out um, snowmobiling and trying to get like a ton of stuff every day, those photos, I think, had a real beauty to them um, because it was generated out of like a really great group of riders having a good time together and kind of just documenting it with photos in mind but that wasn't really the focus it was more like a supportive environment and uh yeah just mellower yeah because it because that's the thing about uh about mountain films and that they, they truly do have the uh like the the potential of documenting something incredibly beautiful that moment of stoke or um the the sheer beauty of the landscape around you um but it, it it's so interesting the the other end of that is what what kind of sounds like um uh an obsession on the perfect shot and, and a whole lot of politics around sponsors wanting to get the longer segments and uh and things like that and then also on, on top of that just um in order to to make that happen th there's a lot of risk on on the athlete's part as well right like in mm -hmm. in, in in order to get that perfect shot yeah, yeah, definitely the ones with their bodies on, on the line. I'm curious if uh, what your your experience was with whether that's um, pushing your own limits, whether, whether from an, an an intrinsic motivation or in an unhealthy way, whether it's like an external motivation where you felt your limits were pushed um, to get a shot and you didn't feel great about, or and at the same time, just to make this question really big and vague. Um, uh, any like how how your own fear or, or assessment of risk came into that 
Yeah, it's such a big question. Um, and to answer the first part of it, the first time I got to go, like the first time I was invited to go on a, like a magazine trip, um, the photographer that was working for that one, I, you know, I was, oh, I like, you know, my first time shooting for a magazine, I want to get good shots and um, hadn't really worked with many photographers that much in that way, especially with like a few other writers. And um, I definitely saw some that to my estimation looked like bad recommendations for train things that just had like really bad landings. Um, and then on that same trip, I uh, was on top of something just like riding on Whistler or on Blackcomb, like in the trees kind of, and nothing huge, but you know, the photographer being below and telling me, oh, the lining's good, it's great. And, uh, and it was totally flat and kind of, you can see it from the top and, you know, aired and need myself in the face and got a bloody nose. And I was like, okay, well, that's a really good lesson. You know, um, sometimes not everybody has the same judgment, I guess. I don't know, but it was a lot less, uh, I guess, um, just taking more personal responsibility for myself and not just knowing that like, you need to be really, really clear when you're working with people, I guess. So that was something I felt like, I think I did it a couple of times on that trip where I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this thing and just kind of send it and just stupid. So from there, I feel like how it evolved was um, having the ability to take into consideration suggestions and really for myself, because there was a lot of fear of a lot of things um, that of like terrain. So really just knowing that in order for me to properly evaluate something, I needed to actually be on top of it. So being able to like hike up something and then be able to see it from multiple angles and then um, approach it that way so that I was able to um, think of all the things that could possibly go wrong and then remove um so be aware of things that could go wrong and if I was willing if that went wrong what would be the consequences for me and once I had that really clear in my head um removing all the fear of it and just singular focus on what you wanted to happen which you know yeah there, there's almost a nuance between um thinking um weighing up all the possible consequences with being absolutely committed to that line or to that specific move. Did you ever have issues with um, not being able to, to, to get in the zone to fully commit to a specific move or a line because of that? Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. Probably more recently after I, uh, after I stopped riding professionally, I did a, a trip with um, a show called Underexposed. It was when I met um, Mason Michon and Laura Evans as a skier and I think Rosalind or Revelstoke, but she was on the trip and we were on the backside of Mount Kane on this like kind of TV show shoot or whatever. And um, there was this like amazing shoot, but you had to go across this bowl and it was like all wind scoured. And it was like on the other side, though, was like this crazy, like shark fin looking mountain. It just looked so incredible and so fun. But when I got uh, when it had like Laura, she just because she's a skier, I guess she just like bombed like all the way across all this crazy, like styrofoamy windblown stuff. And I got like halfway through that bowl on my 
splitboard skis and was like, fuck this. <laughs> there was no way. I was so terrified. Um, and I just like took my, you know, skis off and uh, went back. And I felt really, really bad because she needed me to be able to do the line too. And yeah, so that was one where I pulled the plug. Mm-hmm. But it also sounds like that's a, a an example of setting hard limits on what you're cool with, you know, and and having a a a good enough relationship with your your crew that that's okay, you know, like yeah, and just know. like I guess that one was more related to my confidence level touring, um, and on on skis because most of the time it's like you know switchbacks or back and forth and in deep pow and there's not really a lot of consequences when I've been touring before, but that was one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Like managing risk in relation to your skill level, I guess, because you really have to know your own skills to be able to properly assess mm. that. Like you can't have some overblown version of what you're capable of and properly assess risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. Can you tell a story about a day or, or, or even a period where, you were most in your zone um, in, in terms of confidence and skill and, and everything coming, coming together. Yeah. Um, I guess there was like the only time really that really stands out for me was um, yeah, I was doing a ton of like this, like, Taoist style yoga I guess and I was I was eating I was think I was at a period where I was eating almost entirely raw foods like it was really wild and a lot of dedication to kind of like this yoga energy work practices and it was to the point with it a couple times where you could like just put your hand close to like I remember I had an aloe vera plant and you could actually feel where it's like aura or energy began um, without touching it yet, which was really incredible. So there's this stuff going on, but, um, I remember there was like some big jump and, um, did all that, like managing your fear thing and then decided to go do it or whatever. And I remember like leaving the lip of the jump and it was the wildest thing because when, however, I like popped into like a front side spin, it was like, there were like kind of like gears I picture the gears like on our fishing boat in the winch but they're kind of like like a gear like you know with teeth on it and it like it like started spinning but then as it spun it like hooked into ones above it and like spun and so it just like made all like you know if you believe in the chakras but it was you could feel the chakras like activating and like beginning to spin and like harmoniously go together and it was like the like probably the most perfect moment I could have in my life where it was like it felt like I had like super 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 relaxed and almost like I was aware of like every single cell in my body in a way it was really weird and then yeah just came around and landed and was super stoked <laughs> wow i i've um i've had the experience of like being aware of 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 every cell in my body but like only in like meditation i can't imagine that like in the like uh while riding and in 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 any way that's so cool 
like it was like a maybe 70 foot jump and like to like front five which is like the front side spins like my fall back because that's the first one I learned I guess uh, but um but yeah and just like so much clarity in it and I've never really had that happen again um even in any kind of meditation or anything like that so it was pretty amazing that it came through in that moment you know that's yeah I I I, I read a lot about um altered states of consciousness or, or or peak states of consciousness and um there's always an, an elusiveness uh to it and that um you, you develop practices whether whether that's through through diet or or through like a, a a yoga practice in order to to get yourself um to be able to access those states more but to to some degree those states are always so so elusive to find but that's a yeah it's a great story um so it, it's in the the transition from from snowboarding to to basketball it's when you said you said um you you're a lot more polarized um or you're less polarized about it now you can see both sides but it it sounds like you you really did fall out of love with with snowboarding is, was that is that true yeah i kind of i feel like i kind of ruined it in my pursuit of making it something to be successful at. Um, and then, yeah, there was this period where I wasn't riding for about a year and I was working really intensely with um, relearning the spinning techniques. Part of the part of the thing that I hadn't really put together and haven't really talked about though was also during that year of relearning these spinning techniques. I also had like a really intensive at-home practice of that same uh, kind of Taoist yoga energy work um stuff and I think that plays a much bigger factor in that year than than I've talked about before I guess um because there was you know one to two hours practice at home and there was a couple times in the classroom a week but um I think that was partly the key to opening up um different versions of that same kind of feeling as in that like one snowboard jump, um, those kind of altered states of seeing the world, I guess, mm -hmm. or experiencing the body is like a big one. Cause like with the weaving, especially starting to dig into performing and relearning a practice that hasn't been in use for a long time yet has such an old, 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 like an ancient history. Like weaving is so ancient on the whole, like every culture in the world virtually, you know, just like, a lot a lot of stuff's tied in there and um to, for your body like to kind of <clears throat> so for the the mountain goat wall spinning that I was doing that year I stopped riding um that was like a um yeah this returning wanting to return to the original um fiber that we used on the coast which was the mountain goat wall um and feeling as though there were um, things in it that you, to, in order to access, you need to like approach with like a deep reverence and respect for it as its own spiritual being, its own entity, whatever it is, like that animal, um, as like such a sacred place in Northwest Coast culture. And that ties into the mountains as well as being sacred and supernatural places too. But um, 
so I didn't want to have I didn't want to send away this like fiber to like a factory to have a machine do it for me so it was really like a desire to um kind of discover what it had to offer so that was um a really big transformation of seeing the body less as a tool simultaneously a tool but like in order to do something like that it has to like move through you and there's this idea that we are the ones doing but it felt much more like it the material was like medicine and it was moving it needed to move through me in order to change form which is a really wild concept when you think of the transformation of matter um, and how things are made it's quite like a magical thing and uh I feel like I just had an opportunity to just kind of focus in on really one specific thing for like a year. And of course, like, I think there's like this amazing quote that said something like, if you love anything enough, it will give its secrets up or something like that. And just like acts of love and devotion and dedication to anything will like, and this like sense of it wanting it to be a reciprocal relationship I guess rather than this like take 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 like, we just want things to, to take them <laughs> yeah I um could you repeat that quote again because I, I like that so much or, or or paraphrase the quote yeah, about love and devotion yeah I think it was um if you love anything enough it will give up its secrets because mm. so so part of this project as well is um trying to uh better articulate uh, the case for the more than rational. Um, and, and when you say that, that, that quote, it makes me think about um, so much of, of Western society has been conditioned around um, what does and doesn't exist. It comes down to what we can prove by science. And, and um, a quote like that is a great example where um, if you uh, believe that there's only mind and matter and nothing, I- anything that, that, that isn't human or living doesn't have an additional existence or consciousness, that's going to be absolutely true. But if you practice something um, where um, you, w- you intentionally give it love and devotion, um, who knows what's going to open up, you know? Yeah. Uh, so fascinating yeah yeah there's to expand on it a bit in the thinking of it um just as you're speaking it reminded me of um this talk i listened to on cbc um and it was by dr robert lanza who's like a physicist a theoretical physicist and he's got a theory called biocentrism and in that this is what i took from his like you know hour-long hour and a half talk my understanding of it was that he like flips the whole narrative on its head and he doesn't discredit the whole anthropological or like archeological record, but he explains it in the exact opposite way, which is that um, rather than like us being the result of like all of this stuff happening to arise at what we are, um, that the human mind, it like functions on, um, how do you say it now? It's like, light is being organized as it arrives at an observer so he says there's like that's why like belief systems can be so powerful that like we 
are misreading or misinterpreting the world and we're changing what things are into, to fit our belief system on some like level. But I feel like that kind of, um, he basically says that the way that we see the world impacts what the world is. Mm -hmm. So if you look at something as dead and lifeless and meaningless, that's like all it's going to be. But if you like look at it as like magic or that it has these like intangible teachings that those kind of things, this kind of possibility at like, if you believe in like the quantum level of things that this possibility of the quantum world to like reemerge as something else to be other things than we say it is. And especially the limitations of language are fascinating to me because like, especially indigenous languages that carried so much um, knowledge about the land and so much meaning in one single word, but that I'm a language expert, but this is what I've been told. And I do know that English is like extremely, like the definition and labeling um, of everything is like, I think heavily problematic because it gives us this impression that we understand what something is and parameters around it. And of course we need that, we need like, we need things to be pinned down so that we can have some semblance of being able to share the world and share in like a consensus reality and agreement of what things are. But in really old cultures um, that had the word as like, like an oral history rather than writing things down and externalizing all of our language and all of our like knowledge, we had like this internalization and relationship to the world that um, kind of like transcends that linearity in so many ways, like our ceremonies and the songs and the dances that went with them and the way that those things are carried through objects and through art is this like, I think this thing that's really been lost for our world, you know, and like opening up that um, magic that exists in our relationships to the objects in our lives, to like the people in our lives and pets, everything, land, it's just like, we, I don't know, I just think we live in such an amazing gift and we're selling ourselves so short with like some of the ways that Western education um, teaches us to see. Yeah, yeah, and, and part of why I'm so passionate about it is, is because I was very much at the extreme of the, the, the rational skeptic and, um, uh, and it's been the the most fun and rewarding journey to to delve into to the more than rational and, and i when i make the argument with with uh skeptics uh, about the the more than rational worldview it, 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 even if i can't convince them what i always lean on is life is so much more fun and magical when you open yourself up to to the more than just the cold hard facts you know uh, yeah yeah what was your process of, were you, were you always open to the magical or, or when did you, um, when did you first um, really capture the, the, the magic of, um, I guess, your indigenous heritage? Um, I guess it was through like, uh, again, I guess through nutrition and food. Like I was mentioning, I was really into raw foods and just have just been interested in food and nutrition for quite a long time. Um, enjoyed reading books on that. And one of the things that raw foodists were talking about, and I, I more, I did like maybe two months where that's all I did was raw food. But um, 
it's too, un, like I can't maintain the kind of dedication that needed. So I don't do that anymore, but I am very, still very into the philosophy um, behind some of it and um, that depth of relationship with food and like seeing plants in certain ways. But that was really the, so anyway, in that realm, they talk about um, the nutritional value of certain foods and just how um, plants in the wild don't, like they're not managed and, you know, in the same way that agriculture approaches production of food. So I was spending lots of time on the forest, like in the forest and on the land and harvesting wild foods. And I remember the first time I had that passion for probably like all through my early twenties, I guess, early, mid, late twenties. But the first time that I heard about some of the songs and that went with that were songs you're meant to sing while you're picking berries um, and some of the styles of basketry that went with it too. Um, I was just so, I was in so deep already with the plants like harvesting. I was like pretty obsessive about it. So when I heard about, you know, the other part of it, like what you, just this idea of like different plants and what they're meant for and just like this beautiful purpose that basketry could have um, to serve me in that like relationship I was having with wild plants. Yeah, could, could you share yeah. a little bit more? I know I read that um, your, your heritage is both on on the island of Haida Gwaii and, and um, is it Cape Mud on, on Quadra Island? Or could you just share a little bit more about your heritage and also any oral traditions that have come with it? Yeah, um, yeah. So my great grandmother was from Haida Gwaii and she married down in Cape Mudge. Um, so we like, you know, our family has been in Alert Bay, which is in our traditional territory, um, but we've been in there through different generations. So that feels like home to me for, you know, this life and in some facet, but that's not where the lineage comes from. And yeah, I guess it's just been like a slow process of learning um, and connecting and finding out more. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of that was through the weaving. So that was like a really powerful introduction for me into, into a lot more, like learning a lot more about culture and um, family history and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it, it almost sounded like when you, you, when you described um, your entry into weaving, did it come from a place of uh, wanting to, to design clothing or was the passion from the start for, for weaving? How did you first fall in love with weaving? Um, yeah, it was that first year. I guess I was on the fishing boat and uh, our tie-up man had taken me to harvest the bark from the tree. And I didn't have, it was like a super busy fishing year. So we ended up leaving Alert Bay really quick. And um, we didn't really have time to do anything all summer. It was so busy, like off of the boat anyway. So I, my intention was to buy a book. And because I didn't have the opportunity to do that and nobody to work with me to teach me, I just had like the materials for it and the desire to make something that was for harvesting. And so I kind of was just like um, inventing it, I guess, like this kind of approach. I think I was reading a book at the time actually called Stalking the Wild Pendulum. And it was kind of about this basement physicist named Istav Bentov. And my, my grandpa had passed away recently, but that was a book that he wanted me to read. And, you know, when I was 10 or 12 and I was like, I'm not reading this, but I still had it. So I was reading it 
because um, I had it and it talked also about this stuff, this idea of, it said like all the human mind is more like a transmitter receiver or something and you can tune into knowledge and like talked about all the knowledge that has ever existed or will exist does exist at all times and it's just a matter of tuning into it and so he describes in it like when you're learning something you're kind of stumbling along trying to understand and a lot of the times you get this like flash of complete understanding when like you get it you know yeah and anyway so it was a, I was like okay well if all the knowledge exists then then like somebody had to leave for the first time and it was for a purpose so I'm just gonna like approach it like that and this process of I think that approach to anything is really that's what kind of what opens up a bit of magic, I think, and um, carries with it something that is really anchoring for me because I don't know, I just remember this, I, I guess that process of learning to weave on my own was the cedar bark itself and the cedar tree had such a strong role to play that like things have their own nature. And even though I didn't know what I was doing, so to speak, um, the material will show you how it's meant to be used, I guess. I don't know. So yeah, that was really the, the thing that got me something about the feeling of the way that the bark came apart. Because even when I strip bark or like I'm working on a basket now, it's like this like taking apart of something that's grown or taking apart or deconstruction of the natural world where my grandpa, he had this saying that if you wanna, as like a mechanic and builder, um, like welder and builder for boats and stuff, he's like, if you wanna understand how something works, you take it apart and you put it back together. So I think of that with basketry now, it's like I'm taking apart a tree and putting it back together in this new way. And mm -hmm. yeah, just offers so much. And the rest of the, rest of the stuff was, um, of the other styles of weaving, had more to do with what I was introduced to by other teachers. Cause after that, you're on, you're on the boat. Um, I sought out teachers who knew what they were doing and carried the knowledge and um, showed me like the proper ways to do things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you draw any uh, parallels with similarities or, or differences between um, the old state of consciousness being in your zone uh, while boarding versus being in your zone while while weaving. Yeah, um, I'd say by far the experiences I've felt while I've been weaving um, have been much deeper than the ones snowboarding, and um, yeah, they feel some of them feel connected to really quite intangible things um, and unexplainable things because like you can have the feeling of something and not really know where that comes from you know but it makes the world feel very it's like very psychedelic in a way like heavily psychedelic I would say <laughs> some of the things um, yeah and it seems like almost all of the experiences with with weaving have been very closely tied to the perception of time this like contraction and dilation of it and like dissolution um but the yeah the ver the first time something like that came was um I had this basket I was working on and I always joke about it because I started it but 
it took me two years working on off and on and uh I went through like almost two full sets of sponsors and quit snowboarding in those two years so <laughs> I think it's funny um and then yeah but I was working on it and I remember a point um in creating the bottom of the basket where it's like you have your origin point the first thing you weave around you start with four that are kind of plated together and then you weave like in a circle and you're just going circle 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 and as it um, the circumference grows or the diameter grows, you need to keep adding in. So with this one, they got to a point, um, I think there was like a few hundred or maybe it was almost 400, like 392 or something like ones to go around. So every time you wanted to make like a millimeter bigger on the diameter of the basket, you had to weave like a couple of hours. And there was a point on it though, where it's like almost like to get to that origin point, I call it, it's, that happens very, very quickly at the start and that amount of time it takes grows. So by the end, it's a couple hours to get back to that same point. And it's almost as though um, I had this like sinking down in my consciousness from a really heady intellectual place into like this really deep, like slow, dark, steady, like beat of what I felt like was life like growing. Um, in the plant world and like the different version of time that plants experience, especially trees, because it felt like I was, so I called that piece growth, growth rings of cedar. And um, it was like, it's like when you're weaving on those, it's like you're traveling on this like slow arc of time and it like brings you with it or something. And it just, that, like for the first time, like that was my obsession with the natural world was always this desire to escape like the human mind and like that was the gift through weaving that I received was this kind of place of like refuge you know mm. I'm, I'm similar in that I um I, I spend far more time than I would like very much in my head and and what where I uh enjoy uh whether it's mountain biking or running or hiking or my time outdoors it's it's not just bringing me into the body, but also really bringing me out into the outdoors. It expands me so much more. Um, and uh, it, what came to mind for me, um, as you were talking about um, your, your concept of time, but, but also the, the relationship with the bark is um, when you're in the outdoors, you, you, uh, you can look at the rock formations and, and see the story of how they erupted from the pacific ocean or or how they eroded down to 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 form um the basin and it and it really does transform you through space and time in that way yeah so amazing yeah so amazing because yeah you're like stepping into some portion of its of its cycle or it's like this like amazingly long geographical scale of how things like that are formed it's amazing i think it was in um in in, in one of your, your your previous interviews where we where you spoke about how you fell out of love with snowboarding um uh, and you've shared it today about the um the way the other forces um around um pleasing sponsors or or getting the best shots or like a film making a lot of money can, can really take away from the, um, the, the magic of spending time outdoors and, and, and pushing your, your physical limits. Um, I'm curious if any of that, let's just call it 
market forces um, is bleeds into your your craft of of weaving oh uh yeah it was amazing the the very first time I went into some art galleries to sell my work <laughs> it was like um the exact same thing at snowboarding almost where nobody wants to pay you anything unless you have a name and uh it, yeah <laughs> so there was a lot of the things that I like a lot of advice I was given um one of the galleries gave me this really great advice um, because I was going into him and being like hey what's this worth like can you tell me what this is worth and he was just like he told me there there isn't a market for northwest coast art um and every individual artist creates their own one and nobody can tell you what your worth is because um what did he say yeah, no one can tell you what your worth is. You have to decide it on yourself, on yourself. And he kind of explained that like, um, you have to know what it is that you want. Um, and then you have to be able to put yourself in a space financially where you can like hold off from underselling it. Cause there's a lot of stuff that goes on. I've heard of anyway, in the Northwest Coast art market where, um, you know, the difference between selling something on Friday, what you'll get as an artist versus on a Monday, because usually people trying to sell on Friday want to get money to go partying or something. Um, <laughs> so there are artists who like exploit their own culture and art in ways that are quite abusive to themselves, you know, even if they're really connected to what they're doing. Um, but I have heard those stories. So there's definitely a whole thing in there. And there's a lot of artists that are that have a lot of problems with the art market. Um, but I did take a lot of lessons about kind of just like holding on to the snowboard world and like hoping somebody would like tell me I was worthwhile, like tell me I'm worth being like having a salary or like, you know, I never was in a position where I was like, this is what I'm worth and like I'm walking away, you know, but that's the thing with like, I've noticed my husband, he's a musician and like people who produce things because like the whole thing like hinges on, you know, like in film productions and all that there's like I don't know just the people who produce things in anything in the world whether it's artistic or like even like farming and commercial fishing it's like they're the ones who make no money it's like these middle people who tend to just like kind of like scoop off the goods that they didn't even create and like market it and make it into something so I made up my mind very very early like from those very first times walking in somewhere that I was definitely not going to make the same mistakes and undervaluing my time as I did in the snowboard world. Can I, as we, we start to, to wrap things up here, right? um, the, like I said, this project is about exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. And, and, and I love that we've been able to dance between both, both snowboarding and, and, and artwork. Um, uh, I'm curious if there's anything else that we haven't uh, covered yet in terms of the, uh, the deeper lessons that that you've learned, both spending time outdoors through snowboarding, through artwork, or, or anything else. Oh, <laughs> the one thing though that I like, because I have you ever heard this in snowboarding or any other sports where it's like, um, you know, when energy drinks and even when Rossignol and Nike and Adidas and all these and Solomon, I remember when Solomon snowboards was starting and they had just started making snowboards and the whole snowboard industry, the kind of there was always this question of like, we're gonna get bought up and sold and like 
where are we going? You know, this kind of idea of what are we and where are we going? And are we just like corruptible or everybody can be bought? Um, <clears throat> and I feel like that, that kind of strand of thinking like continued on and on and on, like through the whole time I was really involved with it. And I feel like that's like the question of um, what, you know, what you are and gets passed on. Like, I don't know, I just find it interesting to think of, of that impulse to have concern for what it's becoming and the future, especially compared to like traditional cultures and that same kind of desire to pass things on. Mm -hmm. It feels like the same, the same impulse. And I think it's a good impulse for the snowboard and like action sports world. This is kind of like the way it doesn't honor elders is a big one mm -hmm. that could be slightly changing in the snowboard world. And, and would you say that's like taking ownership for the, the trajectory that, that, that snowboarding as a culture is going or, or, or what would you say that is? Yeah. Like having values, value sets that you want preserved mm -hmm. or like having the right people profiting and um, yeah, just how things are taken care of and whose hands it goes into because there has been, it seems like more and more of that where it's almost celebrated to to go sell out and make a pile of money for some shitty brand. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, I just, I have a really bad problem with like the energy drink companies. I think they're like, if there is a devil, they're the devil. And mm. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. like, everyone's just got their shit plastered everywhere. And it really bothers me. But like, a lot of the people that have it don't even like it. It's like, I just think it's, well, Megan, this isn't so much fun. I mean, I, I, where can can people listening find more of you? Um, I don't know. I've got uh, my website. It's uh, I've got a blog, I guess, more than a website. It's just my name, MeganO'Brien.com. There's some writing up there. I haven't updated it in quite a while, but uh, that, and then mostly on Instagram, I guess, mm -hmm. for now. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Megan, thank you so much. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. I've left a bunch of show notes. Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. I've linked Megan's uh, website there in the show notes as well as uh, her Instagram and uh, an article I found by Robert Lanter on, on biocentrism, actually the CBC article uh, that, that Megan referenced as well as uh, the book Stalking the Wild Pendulum which was the one that her uh, grandfather recommended to her. If you enjoyed this episode, please take some time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or hit follow on Spotify or share this with a friend. All that jazz. But thanks again for listening. Much love. Take it easy.